Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today in the show, I'll be speaking with Christopher Elias, the author of Gossip Men, J. Edgar Hoover, Joe McCarthy, Roe Cohn, and the Politics of Insinuation. In the book, Elias tracks the biographies of Hoover, McCarthy, and Cohn and situates them in the post-war surveillance state and really considers how each of them enacted a different kind of masculinity, whether it was Hoover's bureaucratic Protestant moralism or McCarthy's blue-collar protector of the nation status, um, or Cohn's just being the ultimate inside man wheeling and dealing with everyone. Um, And it's also a history of information, a history of secrecy. Um, It really is doing a lot. And uh, And Chris, I'm really thankful that you're on the program. Thank you so much for having me, Dexter. It's wonderful to be here. Great. And so just to begin, um, I would love to hear how you came to the project. Like, where did you get the idea to study the history of gossip? Yeah, it's a great question. I started, you kind of dip your toe into these things and then I think suddenly get grabbed, right? And so I started thinking about Roy Cohn, actually, because I think Cohn is such a fascinating figure because at the center, of course, you have this aspect of him using homophobia to forward his career to become one of the, you know, handful of most powerful people in the United States for a brief period of time in the early 1950s uh, at a very early age as well. He's 26, 27 when he's working for McCarthy. But then, of course, it is the grand irony that Cohn himself during that time is having homosexual liaisons with men. He is ultimately, after the McCarthy era, um, continues doing so and dies in uh, the 1980s as a result of AIDS, uh, even though he um, even though he denies it. On his deathbed, he says, to the end, he has liver cancer, even though he is sneakily trying to get access to uh, early access AZT treatments. And so the irony of Cone, that hypocrisy, really drew me into it. And I did an undergraduate, or excuse me, a master's thesis that was about Cone and really about those ironies and the ways that he used masculinity to shape his own political identity. And then when I got to graduate school and started working a little bit more on this project and wanting to expand it into a dissertation, what I started to think about was the systems and the networks that Cohn worked inside. Because, you know, as I said, he was, he was powerful for this brief moment in American, uh, politics. He went on and had other kinds of power in the 70s and 80s, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But the but the fact of the matter is that Cohn is working within a network that is uh, helping him expand this homophobia, expand this 
kind of masculinist rhetoric that he's using to build his power base. And so uh, I started looking into his relationships with key figures. Obviously, Joe McCarthy was central because he was McCarthy's uh, number one associate there uh, on the um, security subcommittee. And then I think behind this in a deeper way, fueling it was Jagger Hoover. So, so you start with those three guys and looking at the relationship between them. Um, and then the other thing that had brought me to uh, Cone and the, the moment in the Army McCarthy hearings that really crystallizes a lot of this and with which I start the book is this piece in which uh, McCarthy is going back and forth with the Army Council, uh, Joseph Nye Welch, over this question of how a doctored photo got into evidence. And Welch asks whether or not it got into evidence by a, uh, a pixie. And it's, it's, a, it's actually, when Welch says it, it's a triple entendre, right? It's, it's not a double entendre, it's a triple entendre because it, number one, there is this idea that like a magical fairy come and, you know, a magical spirit come and give you this photograph. Uh, number two, there's the homophobic slur there. And number three, at the time, there's a company actually selling a small wrist watch camera called the Pixie um, that was being used. And so in this moment, it happens on April 30th, 1954. In this moment, you have Welch and McCarthy going back and forth, Cohen sitting next to McCarthy at the table, kind of going back and forth with this homophobic banter? Did it come from a pixie? Did it come from a fairy? And number one, Welch is, you know, referring to these rumors that uh, Cone and perhaps even McCarthy were engaged in homosexual relationships. And I'm reading about this and then later listening to the audio of it and watching clips of it. And people in the room laugh when they hear this kind of homophobic banding about happening, this pixie fairy double slash triple entendre. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, how did the people in that room know to laugh? How did they, how were they in on the joke? And so if you have a rumor, if you have gossip about two guys in a homosexual relationship, is that going to filtered down to the general public in 1954. You know, this is around the same time that on I Love Lucy, uh, on the episode in which Lucille Ball basically announces her pregnancy, they're not allowed to say the word pregnant, right? So you're living in a time it has this deep cultural, uh, these deep walls or these tall walls, I should say, up that are governing what is culturally acceptable. And so with that, moment of cultural uh, governance, are people going to understand this banter? And so I just kind of went from there. And and ultimately, I conclude that, yes, the reason that people were able to laugh was because these rumors, this gossip, not only was it in the air, uh, kind of metaphysically and, 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 and literally in the conversations at cocktail parties and things like that, but it was also appearing uh, subtly and not so subtly in gossip magazines. So gossip as this kind of essential vehicle um, for discussing political issues that are perhaps not to be discussed in the pages of more mainstream publications. 
Uh, and so I, I just kind of kept following the crumbs as it were. And then uh, wherever it took me, I tried to open up and say, okay, how does this process work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that, that sets up our conversation really nicely. Um, the, the first place that I want to take it is um, in sort of this, uh, in the pre, into the prehistory of gossip and, uh, and or at least the gossip in your story. Um, so can you share with listeners uh, a little bit about the, like what you call the rise of the gossip industry in um, the, like the, the late 19th century, early 20th century? Um, I mean, in particular, you um, you write a bit about uh, Town Topics, the Journal of Society, um, and their you know like innovative tactics like blind items and stuff like that. Um, so, can you just uh, yeah like share share with our listeners um, what the the rise of the gossip industry entailed? Yeah, and and it's a it's a fascinating history. I think it's an understudied history, and unfortunately, when you think about it. Uh, it's a history that doesn't have a ton of evidence because these things, these gossip magazines, these tabloids are often seen as not worthy of historical memory. So you're not going to go to very many uh, archives and be able to find a full run of some of these gossip magazines, particularly when you get up into the 1950s. But going back, you have this moment in which during the late 1800s, late 19th century, there is this influx of immigrants. So you have a larger reading public coming into urban spaces. And I think you have a number of publishers that are really trying to think of how they can make more money off of these immigrants. So in some ways, the gossip industry is a natural outgrowth of the early 19th century penny press. And uh, so you have this new audience, these new pocketbooks, if you will. Excuse me for a second. You have this new audience, this new pocketbooks, if you will, uh, that are available to publishers. Uh, and the question is, okay, how do you get these people interested? And so a number of different uh, tactics emerge in a way of doing that. One of the um, one of them is to start to use shorter, more clipped stories that have instead of this kind of deep examination of politics or business, uh, rather things that everybody would be interested in. Uh, rumors about. Neighbors and, and obvious and 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 although this would I'm presenting it as something that develops into a uh, group that are presenting it as it develops, although I am presenting it as something that develops as a way of attracting a broader readership at maybe the working classes, it really begins oddly enough. Uh, the first gossip in town topics and Broadway brevities is really about the upper crust. Right. And it's so what are the Astors doing? What are the Vanderbilts doing? What are the Rockefellers doing here at this moment in New York? What are the different actresses on the vaudeville stage getting up to? And these kinds of stories end up attracting such a largely large leadership, I think, partially uh, because it is creating this um, singular culture at a time when there aren't 
uh, you know, movie houses are really, you know, just getting started in the late 19th century. Uh, and, you know, to what degree people have access to stage performances and vaudeville shows. You have this moment in which uh, the everybody in the city would be interested in what is happening to these high society folks. So you start with a couple of magazines, newspapers, uh, as you mentioned, Town Topic is really the first founded by a guy uh, taken over, uh, founded by the brother of a guy by the name of Colonel William Dalton Mann um, and uh, taken over by Mann. He was a Civil War uh, veteran. And what he did was uh, really revolutionary as Town Topics, which had been kind of gossipy, but into something that really covered the savory underbelly of or the unsavory underbelly, as it were, of uh, New York, um, of New York society, and so, so what man um, does is he brings to the public all of these stories that aren't quite fit for polite conversation, but apparently, from what we can see from the record, a lot of people are reading them. A lot of people are interested in them. Um, the other thing that man does, uh, and that town topics and later Broadway brevities does as well is after learning a piece of gossip, will the go then and, uh, try to entrap, uh, individuals, uh, the topics or the subjects of the gossip to get them to pay, to not have the gossip put into the newspaper. Uh, this is something that happens actually. Uh, so he posts the 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 husband of Emily Post, the gossip, the later advice columnist, I should say, um, and these people who are working on Wall Street, these people who are working um, as captains of industry, will often pay these gossip magazines to not run information on them, and so you have these dual sources of income. You have the newspapers themselves and the newsstand sales. And then you have this other income that is coming from individuals who are paying to actually keep their names out of the paper. And what I do in the book is I, I talk about a couple that I think are particularly innovative and particularly fascinating, but there are uh, handfuls of these different publications that come up around the turn of the 20th century. And the, the arc typically seems to be they will grow in circulation, grow in popularity, grow in influence, and then finally be faced with uh, a number of libel suits and then have to shut down or very much temper their tone as a result of the libel suits. And then some other magazine or some other channel will come up. Um, and so that's, that's the origin of them. It's taking advantage of uh, cheaper um, publication costs, um, uh, better technology as far as putting forward that publication, enabling um, certain you know larger use of photographs and images, uh, and then taking advantage of a new urban readership uh, that is growing as cities explode in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, and then ultimately uh, dying as a result of coming into too much conflict with the powers that be, whether that be legal powers or um, financial powers uh, 
as they start to go after these captains of industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, gossip, at least in uh, the way you're telling the story, really is just so central to all these different you know, big processes of modernity, you know, like urbanization, um, even like the rise of, um, you know, these new technologies like snap cameras and, um, you know, and eventually film, um, uh, um, like the rise of celebrity power, like all these things are deeply intertwined with um, the gossip industry. Um, and it, it really does provide uh, um, a useful context for, the um uh, the figures that you study um, in the rest of your book um right one of the, one of the things i love about the gossip industry is that you do have peep these gossip magazines but then you have um tabloids that kind of take certain tactics from the gossip magazines and even certain people certain writers certain columnists and start to fold them into even a larger readership uh, places like the New York Evening Graphic is an example of that. So it's so it's an example of something that starts maybe on the margins and then because of its success becomes a little bit more adopted by the mainstream. Yeah. And so I want to um, think about your first figure, um, J. Edgar Hoover. Um, uh, you know, I, I hadn't really studied his life too much, uh, and so it was. A re- it was just really fun to work through his biography. He's, uh, um, you know, a very peculiar man, uh, and your attention to, um, you know, masculinity and secrecy uh, makes it all the more interesting. Um, but I would like to hear a little bit about um, his masculinity. You know, his surveillance state masculinity, to use your your phrasing. Um, uh, especially in how he managed the FBI, um, trying to make it more scientific, modern, morally um, upstanding, white collar. Um, uh, you know, like how, how how does this for you represent um, a distinct masculinity? I have this line in the book that where I say that Hoover was born into bureaucracy. And so the masculinity that he comes out of and this is partially why I frame it this way, is pretty different than the masculinity that Joe McCarthy and Roy Cohn come out of. But they still have some very similar values. And and when they get down to it and they're working together in the 1950s, uh, they're appealing to some similar touchstones. But Hoover himself really comes out of this kind of marrying of white-collar professionalism uh, this idea that being a white collar worker and a clerk and a government worker in the turn of the 20th century is something that can be masculine, right? Is something that can thought of, uh, can be thought of as fulfilling certain classic masculine tropes, at least the way that they were thought of at the turn of the 20th century. So he's marrying that with this macho masculinity that seems to if not be consistent and constant, then consistently bubble up at certain moments in the history of American gender, right? And so when Hoover gets to the FBI, we have to remember he's incredibly young. He's uh, under the age of 30 when he becomes the acting director of what was then called the Bureau of Investigation in 1924. And he has partially as a result of the Teapot Dome scandal and the clearing that happens, the... uh, after the Harding administration, 
Hoover somewhat has, if not carte blanche, then he has the space to redraw the Federal Policing Bureau, the first Bureau of Investigation, then what we know of as the FBI, in his own image, right? And so what he does, I argue, is try to marry that macho masculinity and put it in um, a suit. It's like putting, uh, you know, John Cena in a suit, if you will, to use a 2021 uh, muscular reference. Uh, And what he is doing is he's turning the FBI into, instead of having it grow out of this Texas Ranger, Wild West lawman understanding of law enforcement, he's taking elements of that, right? He's taking elements of the machismo there and the boldness and the authority and the aggressiveness, but he is putting it in a package that's palatable to the American public. And it's a package that quite frankly looks good. He gets a lot of young men who are single, have educations, usually uh, uh, graduate degrees in either law or some kind of accounting or finance. Uh, He puts them in suits. He ensures that their hair is cropped in a certain way. And by doing that, he is able to publicly create, even from the beginning, even in the 1920s, even before he is embracing this war on crime um, uh, popular understanding of the FBI as the G-man, even before he does that, he is creating a stable of law enforcement officers that are going to be appreciated by the American public, an American public that uh, in many ways wants conservative order after some of the excesses of both the Harding administration and then you know later the Roaring Twenties. At the same time, he is infusing the actual policing they're doing with a scientific sensibility that makes it seem like what the FBI is doing is not what uh, Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson and all of the great lawmen of the Wild West were doing. What they're doing is being professional, specific, collecting evidence. So some of the things he does, he establishes a number of different schools for law enforcement to come and learn things about uh, looking at wound analysis and ballistics. Uh, he sets up the first uh, the first system for scientifically collecting and organizing fingerprints. Uh, in the history of the FBI. And I think in doing this, yes, I do think he believes that this kind of scientific policing works. But at the same time, I think he is also elevating the FBI as a unit that has a grasp on not only what is uh, essential and at the cutting edge of law enforcement technology, but is also something that again, with an eye to the public, uh, is also something that the public can have faith in. Right? The public, it's, it's not like the law officer, the FBI officer, special agent that you run into is making this up. No, there's evidence. There is a theory behind it uh, that will ensure that the country is safe from public enemy number one, uh, you know, John Dillinger, Machine Gun Kelly, whoever it may be at that time. And But he's wrapping it in this kind of paternalistic, masculinist package 
that very much speaks to where he hopes speaks to the country and calms them during a time of upheaval between the Depression, uh, New Deal, and this kind of great war on crime that he's running during the 1930s. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Yeah, so another thing about Hoover that really comes through in your book is that he has this insight um, about sort of this, like the like the importance of the membrane of uh, um, of an, a bureaucracy. Um, you know, this like like a bureaucracy has um, interest in keeping a lot of stuff secret. But then um, the bureaucracy also has an interest in releasing some stuff to the public. And so um, Hoover is just obsessed with the public image of um, the FBI, you know, and that comes through in, um, uh, you know, like the appearance uh, and selection of the G-men. But then also, you know, um, you detail some really interesting anecdotes about, um, you know, uh, um, him uh, arresting a big mafioso uh, and uh, you know, just brandishing his um, own masculine credentials, um, you know, inviting the press or you know, sharing the story with the press. Um, do you want to say something briefly about this? Yeah, during the peak of the war on crime in the 1930s, Hoover really puts himself in front uh, of the FBI as a figurehead, both I think because of his ego and because he's trying to assure a public that is dealing with a string of bank robberies and gangland crime that everything's going to be okay. Um, and, and while he's trying to uh, popularize both himself and the Bureau, a, I, I can't remember who, I think it's a Senator from Tennessee under questioning actually calls Hoover out. He says, how many arrests have you personally made? And so Hoover wants to ensure that he's at the head of that. And I think the moment you're referring to in the book is his arrest of Alan Carpus, which happens in, New Orleans, uh, there is a press release out immediately uh, after the arrest happens, hailing the fact that Hoover did the collaring himself. Of course, the story is that FBI agents had already done all the work of securing Harpus in this Plymouth coop that he was in. Um, and you know, Hoover comes out later to take pictures and get all the glory, right? But I think that he – I think you hit the nail on the head – their Dexter in the sense that he understands the importance of information. He understands the importance of keeping some information a hundred percent quiet, right? And some information a hundred percent under lock and key and then letting it out in dribs and drabs. And often he's not the one who's letting the information out. He is giving it to allies in the government like Joe McCarthy, like Roy Cohn to let them extend it because he wants to establish these relationships with uh, people on the political rather than bureaucratic side of the government and so that he can keep getting what he and the FBI both need and want in order to keep doing their jobs or at least keep doing the job that Hoover wants them to do, whether or not it's actually in their purview. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, another uh, detail that uh, I, I, I found hilarious was uh, his obsession with uh, his his own height, and um, you know, his his claim to being almost six feet. Um, and he would bolster this by, um, you know, promoting short people within the bureau, um, so that the people around him would always be slightly short, shorter than he was. Um, was right. And, you know, as someone who's only five, six, I can certainly sympathize with this <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, desire, um, but perhaps not the best way to run an organization. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I would love to move on to, um, McCarthy now. Um, and, the the way that you set up McCarthy or the the context that you put him in is like again back into this um, like gossip industry, um, and I find this so interesting because um, it's uh, I mean like some of the the gossip magazines that you talk about were extremely popular. You know, Confidential um, was outselling you know Life and Time in the mid fifties um, at in certain months. Um, and so, you know, you call this the golden age of American gossip magazines. And there's there's a lot of resemblances between what the gossip industry is doing and kind of the um, the techniques of McCarthyism. And so this this context, at least for me, I found really compelling. Um, do you want to share a little bit about um, the, you know, what you call the golden age of American gossip magazines? Like why was gossip so in vogue um, in this immediate post-war moment? Yeah. And with any historical question, it becomes so fascinating because it's the confluence and number of forces coming together. It's not just one thing, right? And so there's there's a logistical aspect, right? That gossip magazines explode after 1947 because paper rationing ends, right? So it's, it's a possibility for these uh, young entrepreneurial editors and publishers to throw out a gossip magazine, create their own magazine, see what happens. You know, very famously, uh, I love this, that the original um, the original issue of Playboy, the one with Marilyn Monroe famously on the cover, doesn't have a date on it because Hugh Hefner isn't sure whether or not it's going to sell out. And he doesn't want the October edition being on newsstands in you know, the coming February if it hasn't sold out, right? And so – it's this moment of experimentation. So there is that logistically. Uh, number two, of course, with everything else in post-war America, you have uh, expanding wallets and these new markets that are being opened. Uh, not only uh, people coming back from the war and wanting to spend money, wanting to grow, wanting to expand, uh, but also to some degree the teenage market. Um, so there, there are those kind of logistical economic aspects But at the same time, you have this focus in Cold War America, early Cold War America, on secrecy, on intelligence, on knowledge. And all of a sudden, gossip becomes really, really relevant. And as I've said before, this, this idea that your neighbor at one point, you know, flirted with joining a socialist club in the night when, you know, he was in college is no longer just interesting an interesting factoid to share at a cocktail party. It might even be a piece of national significance, of national security significance, right? The fact that somebody at work you saw um, out in a supposed gay cruising area uh, in Washington Square Park or something like that, 
again, becomes this moment of national significance, national security significance, because of the Cold War, because of the anxieties that were dominating and fueling that moment in American history. And so gossip magazines are seizing on not only this growth in interest in celebrities, uh, the uh, availability of new uh, photography techniques and the ability to print photographs more cheaply after World War II, the ending on paper rationing, things like that. They're also seizing on this general zeitgeist, this kind of spirit in the air that gossip and information now has more resonance and has more weight to it. And yeah, maybe some of the uh, things like uh, whether or not, you know, the article in Confidential about whether or not athletes are lousy lovers is, you know, a little bit less important to national security or things like that. But still you have this kind of spirit of information uh, as central. And that, of course, extends in many ways from the conversation we were just having about J. Edgar Hoover understanding uh, ways to weaponize and yield, uh, wield, excuse me, information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so how does McCarthyism fit into all this? So like you have, yeah, you have like the, um, the rise of this, um, like cultural obsession with gossip. Um, um, but then now you have this, you know, this like Midwestern Senator, um, uh, who is, you know, accusing uh, everyone in the government of being a communist. Like how, how exactly does this fit with the gossip industry? Yeah, it's it's a great question. It's really at the crux of uh, the book's arguments about Joe McCarthy and the arguments of the book more generally. What I'm arguing really is that Joe McCarthy is using a number of the tools that gossip magazines both popularized and then made readable to the general American public in order to forward his quest, right? So for example, um, con- you know, th- classic gossip magazines like Guilt by Association, uh, Insinuation, um, you know, putting people... Uh, portraying them in certain ways and hyperbolic language really helps. The most explicit one um, that I love is the idea of what the New York Evening Graphic in the 1920s called the composograph, which is a portmanteau of composite photograph, right? And which they would actually have fake photographs. Rudolph Valentino arriving in heaven uh, was one of their most popular ones, right? Um, And, when you see that image on the page, you realize that the New York Evening Graphic didn't send uh, a photographer up into the clouds to see Rudolf Valentino arriving in heaven, but you have that immediate moment of understanding. And McCarthy, when he is um, trying to orchestrate a campaign uh, against uh, Millard Tidings, a Maryland senator who was opposed to McCarthy actually sends out information in the form of a tabloid, right? It's produced by McCarthy's staff um, to run against Miller Tidings. And he includes in this tabloid, a composograph of Tidings with Earl Browder uh, then, or until recently had been the leader of the American Communist Party, right? So what McCarthy is doing, whether he is in front of the cameras, whether he is giving a press conference, whether he is at one of his uh, inquisitions that he's running uh, in the Senate, um, 
what he is doing is using this vernacular, using this language to speak to the American people. And what it helps him do is not only communicate to a larger, wider public, which is uh, probably not going to look into things very deeply um, and allowing him to quickly do that, but it also allows him to paper over the fact that he doesn't have a lot of evidence, right? And he doesn't have, there's not a lot of fire underneath all the smoke that he's making. And, but he's, by using this kind of pastiche, by using this suggestion, by using these insinuations, um, what he is doing is really giving more fuel to his crusade uh, and making it more readable, making it easier to follow uh, from the American public's perspective and thus amplifying uh, his own popularity and then amplifying his own level of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so these, um, I mean, I, I love the anecdote about, um, you know, his staffers actually producing a tabloid um, to uh, make accusations. And so you, you really, you know, like you really do see all these um, connections. Like these aren't coincidences um, that, uh um, uh, so much of what these gossip magazines are doing and what McCarthy is doing um, are, uh, are are similar. Um, um, and the the last figure in your book um, is Roy Cohn. And so you've already talked a little bit about him um, in the opening of our interview. Um, but I'm wondering what sort of, um, well, actually, if you could tell us a little bit more about who he was and what innovations did he make in um, this world of, you know, gossip and politics of insinuation and masculinity? Yeah, it's interesting to think of him as an innovator. I don't know how much of an innovator he was as much as he wanted to push things farther than anyone else or further than anyone else, I should say. And um, so Cohn was from uh, coincidentally, a very powerful democratic family in New York. His father was a judge, um, had you know flirted with federal judgeships on a number of moments. And so he comes from this family where the dad's a fixer, basically, um, New Deal Democrat. And the mother has uh, this obsession with social elevation. She has this obsession with being thought of as being in the upper crust, which of course, to some degree is difficult for the family because they are Jewish, right? And they're always going to be in what remains a very anti-Semitic social world in New York in the 1930s and 40s. They're always going to be slightly outsiders. So even though Cone was raised wealthy, ends up going to the best schools, Horace Mann, then Columbia, graduates, you know, runs through Columbia partially because of his own intelligence, partially because of the lax um, requirements during the Second World War. You know, even though Cone has these associations with all of these power structures, and you know, really has always been. Uh, in the upper crust, I mean, his bat mitzvah was at uh, the Waldorf Astoria. He has the sense of himself as an outsider. He has the sense of himself as somebody who has to continuously push. 
And so he turns himself into the product. He sells himself. Uh, and when he becomes an assistant DA in New York, he has a press conference. He has an official swearing in ceremony. Those things aren't necessary, haven't really ever been done before uh, for a young assistant DA in New York City, but he insists on doing it, right? Uh, every, he, he cultivates relationships first with the beat reporters who are doing uh, things covering the crime beat and hanging around the courthouse uh, when Cohn is a young attorney, and then cultivating relationships with uh, really famous gossip columnists like Walter Winchell and George Sokolsky uh, and others uh, as he rises up the ladder of power in the late 40s and then early uh, 1950s. And so what Cohn does is not only does he push the tactics that uh, Hoover and McCarthy were using to uh, they're extreme. He also makes himself the product. Um, and in so doing, I think not necessarily an innovation, uh, but something that is enabled by the cultural touchstones uh, and the cultural landscape of the moment. Mm-hmm. And another sort of interesting thing to all of this is that um, the power of gossip um, is a power that really anyone can behold. Um, and so um, it's really interesting that in, um, uh, in uh, all of the cases in your book, you know, Hoover, McCarthy, Cohn, um, uh, there was uh, a lot of rumor um, uh, in particular about their sexuality. Um, and often in like, the very same magazines that they had exploited in, um, you know, in, in their own, um, you know, like anti-communist, uh, um, uh, tactics. So can you just talk about this, like uncontrollable aspect of the power of gossip? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's the, once the cat's let out of the bag, it's very difficult to get it back in. Right. And the, the, I think what, Hoover, McCarthy, and Cohn end up showing themselves and then uh, observers, um, both their allies and uh, their opposition, is that this gossip thing works pretty well, right? It's it's a way that has allowed them to uh, carve out real power in um, Washington. Uh, Hoover, over a long period of time, uh, McCarthy with this very rapid stratospheric rise. And so it works. And so uh, in many ways, a number of their opponents start using similar tactics against them. I think the most interesting one of these is McCarthy and rumors about McCarthy's sexuality, because there's not a ton of there there, right? There's not a ton of evidence that McCarthy actually engaged in any homosexual relationships. I don't, you know, I very intentionally don't use the book to venture a guess as to whether or not Joe McCarthy um, had gay relationships or was gay himself, uh, whether, you know, what exactly J. Edgar Hoover's sexuality was a question for the ages. Uh, I think it's obviously pretty clear that uh, Roy Cohn himself was homosexual. But the, but 
uh, the fact of the matter is that, you know, McCarthy is so interesting because, yeah, there's not a ton of there there. Um, and so how did these rumors start to get traction and, and, and how do they how do they end up circling back and, and coming back and harming McCarthy? And one of the ways that this happens is through these gossip magazines themselves. Uh, there's a newspaper reporter or a newspaper owner down in Las Vegas, Hank Greenspun. He owns a publication called The Las Vegas Sun. Um, that McCarthy is having an argument with because uh, Greenspun himself is a strong anti-communist, but he's more of an anti-communist from, if not the left, than the center left. And he thinks that McCarthy is actually ultimately harming the anti-communist cause uh, by uh, being reckless. And so Greenspun gets into alliance with another newspaper man, a guy by the name of Drew Pearson, uh, who uh, uh, one of the most popular columnists in the country, who McCarthy also deeply hated after an early flirtation of an alliance in uh, around 1950. And Pearson realizes that he's collecting all these rumors, all this uh, kind of flotsam and jetsam about McCarthy, but he can't publish it in the August newspapers where he's syndicated, right? It's going to not, it's not perfect for syndicated column. So he starts giving it to Greenspun and Greenspun has no qualms about publishing it in the Las Vegas Sun. So the Las Vegas Sun has a series of articles about how Joe McCarthy is a secret homosexual and to wit, you know, to boot, excuse me, a secret communist, right? And, and so these newspaper, it's not, you know, obviously there's not the internet and, and they can't be passed around as quickly, but these columns, you know, get out. And so McCarthy doesn't have a lot of citizen correspondence left, but uh, a Utah senator by the name of Arthur Watkins was investigating McCarthy in, in the 1950s as part of his censure uh, campaign. And um, he has a lot of uh, constituent correspondence. And in that constituent correspondence, you can see people sending him copies of these articles and copies of the rumors when they uh, appear in a small gossip magazine by the name of Rave, right? And so these things are circulating even if they're not circulating at the level of the New York Times or Washington Post or Chicago Tribune. And they ultimately get back to McCarthy. Is this what actually brings McCarthy down? No, it's a, it's a confluence of a number of different factors um, and that he kind of oversteps his usefulness to the right, to the you know center of the Republican Party. But at the same time, they're definitely something that helps undermine the foundation on which he has built mm-hmm. his political pursuit. Yeah, I mean, when, I mean, one of the distinctions that you make between rumor and gossip is that um, gossip, there is the potential for truth, or there's uh, um, there's more of a potential for truth. But um, when it comes to like the evidentiary basis of gossip, um, like it's it's pretty pretty small. Like you don't need uh, much evidence to um, uh, back up any of your claims, and so that actually makes making any claims possible in these um, uh, these magazines and uh, and gossip columns and so on. Um, and so, yeah, so it, it's uh, uh, not a surprise that these tactics eventually, um, you know, uh, reached um, uh, reached the three of these guys, uh, um, you know, in their own right. You know, during the heyday of yellow journalism and uh, New York Herald Tribune and Pulitzer and Hearst going at each other around the turn of the 20th century, I, there's a headline, there's a subheadline in one of the newspapers that you know, gives the big headline and the subheadline says, important if true. 
right? And, <laughs> and, and I, I love that. And, and so much of what I'm doing in the book is not trying to determine the truth of these rumors, whatever the rumor may be, whatever the gossip may be, but ask the question of, okay, why does this get traction? Why in this moment do people care about this? And why are we seeing it bubbling up? And whether or not it's true, who cares in some ways, because it's still impacting the public perception of these individuals and ultimately impacting uh, you know, the course of the U.S. government. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I want to think about um, some of the um, like afterlives of your story. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm curious what parts of your story end in the 1950s um, and then what other parts persisted and, you know, maybe, um, uh, you know, for those parts that persisted, how did they change? Um, You know, of course, the power of gossip lingers and, um, uh, you know, you're, you were writing this book in in the age of Trump. And obviously that's, uh, uh, you know, like, that's just a case of the power of gossip making a roaring comeback in a way. Um, But um, I'm just curious about like these, these afterlives. Yeah, it's so tempting to see uh, the past, not as prologue necessarily, but the past, you know, history repeating and whatever uh, cliches you want to turn to. Um, but the fact of the matter is whether or not this, you know, Trumpism is McCarthyism repeating, um, I think the important thing here is. You know, Joe McCarthy becomes politically largely irrelevant after the fall of 1954. Uh, he dies in the spring of 1957. But the framework that he created, right, the anti-communist right-wing mudslinging that he created lives on in you know various ways long after his death, whether it's through the John Birch Society or elements of the political life of um, Barry Goldwater. Uh, And what I think is so important here is not necessarily the content, but the playbook, right? This playbook of speaking directly to the people in a vernacular that they understand, whether it be gossip magazines themselves or the language of gossip magazines or Twitter or the language of Twitter or the five second news clip on the evening news by being able to master that vernacular, you can in many ways create the truth. You can create or dominate the conversation uh, in a way that's that benefits you. And there are people who do this beautifully um, throughout American history and recent American history. But I think, you know, the one, and there's, there are other more literal connections here that we'll talk about in a second, but the one, as you mentioned, is Donald Trump and Trumpism. Donald Trump, I don't know what's going to happen to him in 2024. I don't know if he's ever going to be hold political office again, but Trumpism, as we have seen, particularly with uh, rumors of the vaccine, has long outlived or will long outlive Donald Trump himself. And it's long ago, it's outlived his presidency already. And so um, what I think is important here, in addition to helping us reframe how we understand the Cold War and the anti-communist movement and the homophobic movements, the lavender scare of the 1950s, is seeing this relationship, this alliance 
uh, between political striving and the use and misuse of the media through things that I call the tools of gossip as really essential. It's it's not a it's not a random blip. It's something that is ultimately kind of central to American political discourse in the 20th century. And as we now see in the 21st. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so much more that I'd love to talk about, but we're uh, coming to the end of the interview. Um, and so I'll just have to encourage listeners to go out and read the book themselves. Um, but before we say goodbye, uh, I would love to hear uh, about what you're working on right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a horse of a different color. I'm working actually on a project that centers around a 1936 murder in southern Colorado. And uh, one of the young men who was ultimately uh, found guilty and executed for that murder was the son of Lebanese immigrants uh, who had come to Colorado to work at uh, in the steel industry here, the Colorado Fuel and Iron Works in Pueblo. Um, and the young man who was executed had an intellectual, severe intellectual disability. And so by looking at that story, what I'm hoping to do is unpack a number of different themes about immigration, racial identification, the creation of whiteness and where that line is during Depression era America, um, things about eugenics, uh, and then the treatment of the intellectually disabled in American history. So again, I'm, I'm trying to start with what I think is a really compelling story uh, and then spin out from there and try to understand the forces at work in it. Mm-hmm. That sounds super interesting. And I can, I can uh, see some of the moves that you made in this book really successfully um, uh, uh, in this upcoming project as well. Um, well, Chris, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Dexter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for asking me such insightful questions. This has been great. Wonderful. And uh, I've been speaking to Christopher Elias, the author of Gossip Men, J. Edgar Hoover, Joe McCarthy, Roy Cohn, and the Politics of Insinuation. And you've been listening to New Books in History, a channel with the New Books Network.